Hard to believe, folks, but it is Monday, January 3rd, the first trading day of 2022. Guy Adami here, joined by Dan Nathan. You are watching the inaugural episode of Market Call Charts. I hope inaugural means first because this is the first one, folks. Every Monday, live at 11 a.m., we're going to break down the most important charts, in our opinion, in the market with the chart master himself, Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. Today's episode of Market Call is brought to you by FactSet and Open Exchange. Dan, Nathan, Happy New Year to you. What's cooking, my man? Hey, Happy New Year to you, Guy Adami. It's great to be here on a Monday, live at 11. Thanks to our friends at Open Exchange for making this happen here. Man, we are going to be looking at the market through different lenses on different days of the week. And you and I are going to still bring the same stuff that we are focused on, the catalyst, the single stock names, the macro stuff. But we're really going to focus on Carter's charts here because he does phenomenal work, as you know, Guy. And he spends his entire weekend literally looking at hundreds and hundreds of charts, which is why Monday is such a perfect day. For, but before we get to CB dubs, as they say, 2021, pretty epic year. I think the S&P was up 27% or something. I mean, we can talk about individual stocks, but it was a monster year no matter how you look at it. Now, look, we've talked about this dozens of times. Below the surface, a lot of damage done to some pretty major names. But if you're just looking at some of these indices, Dan, pretty incredible year. Yeah, the S&P 500 in particular here, you know, with dividends nearly 29% higher. I think Ryan Dietrich over at LPL had a great tweet just demonstrating, you know, when you have a 25% year in the S&P 500, it doesn't mean that you're going to get killed the next year. In fact, it means that you're not likely to beat that sort of percentage gain over the next year, but it's still much higher or higher the next year more often than not. You know, the average, I think, return is somewhere between 9 and 10%. I thought that was really interesting. Interesting. Also, we know, you know, we've seen some some data about the new highs, 70 new highs last year in 2021. That is second to 1995 when there were 77. And we know what happened from 95 up until 2000 when the market corrected. We had a bunch of double digit gains year after year. So that just makes the point that just because you have a great year when it's unexpected doesn't mean that you will not have positive performance from there on out. guy. No, it's going to be fat. Look, I'm really interested to see what happens early this year. We're going to talk about what's going on before we bring Carter in. I mean, just in terms of today, what we're seeing, I mean, again, I think you have to highlight the move in yields. Two years now, around 80 basis points. We haven't seen that in quite some time. And in the 10-year trading either side of 1.6%. I mean, the moves have been pretty epic, but you know, this says it all. I mean, if you just go back and look, it's safe to say with about an 86% certainty that 2022 is going to be a decent year. It might not be 26.9%, but it'll probably be high single digits, you know, High single digits, 11, 12, that type of thing. And look, a lot of people, I think, would be thrilled with that, given what we've just seen. But again, Dan, there's so many warning signs out there, and that's why we're going to have the great Carter Worth every Monday to sort of bring us some of the individual names that he's seeing and what he thinks is going yeah. on. Yeah, well, I guess if you look at the calendar here, we get things going right out of the gate. We know that there's an OPEC meeting this week, an OPEC uh, plus meeting this week, crude oil and the direction of industrial commodities in general have been a big theme. If you think about one of those headwinds that you just talked about, Guy, would be inflation and how the Fed is dealing with that. We know that we have a Fed meeting coming up towards the end of the month. And given what's happened with this Omicron variant, you know, the idea that the Fed might take their foot off the pedal, I don't think so. You don't think so. And that would be wrong 
wrong for them to do so. But, you know, the jobs, I mean, we have a tight jobs market. We have high inflation, and that's all playing into what the Fed may or may not do later this month. But the big one for us, as we think about the stock market, is going to be Q4 earnings and Q1 guidance. And all of those variables that we just discussed, higher rates, higher prices, that's going to work itself into a lot of forward guidance. And that's going to really then cause investors to really focus on valuations and what that means relative to where rates and inflation is expected to be. And this comes at a time, and you've seen the data guy, that corporate profit margins here in the U.S. are very near all-time high. So the question is, do corporates pass through price increases to consumers at a time where we know that stimulus is rolling off and they're also faced with higher prices at the pump in other places, or do they eat it? And does that eat into profit margins? And thus, do we have to rethink current valuations? Because you know where the S&P 500 is trading. It's well above five and 10-year averages right now. Absolutely. I mean, I think the S&P 500 right now is probably trading around 22 or so times earnings, which is a big number. I mean, historically, I think it trades 16 and a half, 17 or so. So you can do that math. The one thing I want to talk about, you know, you mentioned the OPEC meeting. We'll see. I do think energy is going to be a story in 2022. It was a story in 2021 for the right reasons and the wrong reasons. I mean, at the end of the day, energy did pretty well at year end, but some of the peaks and valleys along the way were pretty epic. We'll see what 2022 holds. I'll still say that I think crude oil trades $100 early here in 2022, and we'll see what that means to the broader market. In terms of earnings growth, that to me is everything real quick before we bring Carter in. Obviously, 2021 was a sort of anomaly in terms of earnings growth year over year for obvious reasons. I think things get a little more normalized this year. A lot of people thinking 9% EPS growth. A lot of people think it's going to be more significantly higher than that. That's going to be the story. Anyway, it's time to bring in Carter Worth, who I just mentioned does incredible work every weekend, but he does it over during the week as well. He literally goes through hundreds of charts and he said, bring some stuff with us every Monday. Carter, how are you? Well, I think he's doing fine, guy. He's just on mute right now here, bud. But uh, wait a we're second. He's on here. Oh, here. here we are, that's Carter. Like the opening of a, of a restaurant. They don't have the forks ready. You know? Carter, we're two yeah, years into the pandemic and you're still figuring out how to use Zoom. <laughs> to work welcome so what here, I man. said when no one could hear me is how much I love you guys. Actually, what I actually <laughs> said was that. And yes, I did my Sunday work. Went through a lot of charts and let's try to figure some things out together. Well, let's definitely try to figure some things out. First charts we want to look at, I think, and you love to toggle the S&P 500. I mean, this, look, textbook, lower left, upper right. And this is not over a year. I mean, this is basically for the last five and a half, six years. Looks pretty good. Obviously, outside that huge move to the downside in March of 2020, this is a pretty constructive chart, Carter. Yeah, up and to the right, one would call that an uptrend, right? And one would say, what, how do we know whether it continues or whether it doesn't? The answer is you don't know. But you look for things like divergence, you look for excess in certain areas versus non-participation others. But one thing we know, and this is important, there is an odd, or maybe you call it witless or silly Wall Street convention that strategists produce a forecast for where the market will be 12 months from now, at the beginning of every year, or just at the end. And we have it yet again. I mean, you think how ridiculous, first of all, Who's to say 12 months from now where we will close? Not to mention the path we will travel. I mean, one could say we're going to be up 10%, but we think we'll crash 30% before that and then end up 10%. What does that do? And so what we know, and this is important, is not one single institutional portfolio manager or analyst or trader makes an investment decision based on Wall Street estimates. 
The Wall Street estimates, interestingly, are calling for somewhere of a high between 5330, which you can see there, the top blue line, and 4400. What that really represents, of course, is a gain of about 11, 12% if it gets to the highest reading and a loss of about eight. Here's the thing to keep in mind. Never, not once, has Wall Street predicted a down year. Now, what do we do with that? Meaning they're always bullish. They're paid to be bullish. They're called the sell side. They'll sell anything. And so strategists are always predicting an up year. And interestingly, their median price target for the market is right in line with historical 11, 9, 10%. So I would stay away from those kind of things. In any event, here's a second chart of the S&P. I think a more sober, and let's go back and forth before we talk anymore, back and forth. That's the current Wall Street. I think this is something that's more realistic, meaning we don't, uh, the second chart, a highs of about 5,000, that's only three, 4% from here, with a drawdown prospect of something down to 3,900, which would be something in the lines of, 18, 19, 20%. That steep, uncorrected move since the COVID low, we're due for it. Everyone knows that. Hard to know when it will happen, but it will. Yeah. So, you know, Carter, those are two fascinating charts. And I love the fact that you call it a witless endeavor here. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, these guys and gals, they have to put some forecasts here. They have to put some data behind it here. And I will tell you this, as a longtime market participant who's been using fact set estimates for the entire time here, man, for me, what it does is help parameterize things, right? It helps give me a gauge for sentiment and gives me a sense of where I think the herd is, if you will. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. so if everyone, you know, if all of a sudden we start seeing those estimates get ratcheted up because the market goes higher early in Q1, well, then that gets my antennas up a little bit. And so I see what you see. I see a really unchecked rally, forget 2020, but really 2021 without more than a five and a half peak to trough decline in the S&P 500. I think it was one of five years in 50 that it did not have a greater than 10% peak to trough decline. That's coming to a theater near you. So what I like to do when I'm trying let's say fact set estimates for year end targets and this sort of stuff. I like to see when we do get that pullback and we had one in Q1 of 2021, what do these strategists do? What do these economists do? Do they start ratcheting it down with price performance or do they stand put? You know what I mean? And then when we get back to those levels, do they start going too high, too fast, that sort of thing. So to me, I love that exercise. I get from where you're sitting, it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. And I also see what you see in that range, maybe between 5,000 and 4,000 the SPX. No, that's right. And also it's important to say there are two types of year-end forecasts. Those from strategists, who are doing a top-down based guess, if you will. And then there's a bottom-up approach. If you take all 500 stocks in the S&P and all the analysts that cover the data that FactSet has, of course, and then work backwards to the individual price targets for the 12-month period based on a certain metrics evaluation, and then the market overall. What we do know historically is individual analysts typically revise their earnings for the year forward down about 1% a month and or their price targets. So it, it's always built to be rosy in the beginning, and then things are sort of more, well, sober as things go along. So day one here, Carter, obviously, we're, what are we, two and a half, three hours into it or so. What is your sense? I mean, I, I mentioned at the top of the show that, again, rates to me are clearly top of mind. Maybe it's the dogman me. I'm not sure. But you know, I'm looking at the 10-year back to 1.6, having traded down to 132 or so seemingly just two weeks ago, two-year yields now 80 basis point, crude sort of holding its own around 75 bucks. What sticks out to you on day one? 
Well, I would say, interestingly, it's very esoteric, but one of the best performing areas of the market, REITs, and then within that storage REITs, which had a lot to do with COVID, they are being crushed today. So if you look at public storage, EXR and others, literally massive declines. And I think that often happens when you get the concept of profit taking in the new year. You're seeing some of the most extended names cracking. But in terms of rates, it is a big move. We're back to one six plus. And yet at the end of the day, the irony is the street, and this is back to the sort of the, the witless part, the street has this notion that rates are at one four, we can like tech. It's back at one six or one seven, we can't like tech. When you're doing three and five year DCF work and trying to figure out what a real growth enterprise is worth, the cost of 10 year money being at one four or one seven, one nine or one two is absolutely irrelevant. Yeah. And it's a fascination on the street that they cannot let go of. Well, I think the price action today in a lot of sectors that did very well last year and some that underperformed is really interesting. I know one day or one a few hours does not make a market here. Carter, on, on CNBC's options action on Friday afternoon, the last program of the year on CNBC, you had a call in the semis, the SMH, for a breakout. Look at the second largest component, Taiwan Semi, absolutely ripping up 7%. And to Guy's point about rates, you do not focus on it too much, Guy, and I'll tell you why. Every Every morning, the domino, Dominic Chu on CNBC, he posts this top 10 tickers that are searched on CNBC.com the prior day. When I tell you, it seems like nine out of 10 days is the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is number one, which is fascinating when you think about it. So it definitely has worked its way into the psyche of investors. And because you have rates moving up right now, look at what's going on in the banks. Guy, I got to get your take on that. They are absolutely ripping. And then on the flip side of that okay i see that stuff that really outperformed that was kind of head scratching in the last month and a half or so utilities staples all getting hit hard right now and then i'm also seeing pharma and you just mentioned reeds carter but i'm also seeing home builders getting hit really hard so some really interesting maybe it's just repositioning on the first day of the year guy what's your take on banks because the move out of the gate is pretty impressive Day one coming for Goldman Sachs in a big way. I mean, you know, the thing about banks, I think Carter could speak to this as well because he does fundamental work too. Not all banks are created equal and that comes in the form of valuation. I mean, on the one end of the spectrum, you have a name like Citibank, which at its trough was sitting around 70% or so of tangible book value. On the flip side, you have JP Morgan, which at its peak was probably trading at two and a half times. And one has to wonder if that chasm is justified. I mean, I understand that JP Morgan is a more important, probably a better run bank than City, but how much more and how much more important, I think, is what the market is dealing with. In terms of banks, look, I do think there's going to be some hiccups along the way, but some of these banks continue to be just dirt cheap on a couple of different metrics, price to tangible book one and price to earnings as well. And if we do see a meaningful rise in yields, it obviously plays to their benefit. So I think there's some names you can like. You've mentioned Morgan Stanley for years. I think they're probably best suited in the investment bank. I think Citi will see a meaningful correction to the upside, a meaningful recalibration, I guess, to the upside earlier this year. And my favorite financial, it's not a bank, but Blackstone, which pulled back at the end of last year, I think we'll get on its horse again in 2022. 
All right, so we got to hit one name guy that really obviously took over the market last year. It got to north of a trillion dollars in market cap. The CEO founder, Elon Musk, was made Times Person of the Year just a couple of weeks ago. So we start 2022 kind of the way we started 2021, where literally Tesla and Musk were sucking all the air out of the room. Last night, the company reported their Q4 deliveries, which solidly solidly beat expectations. The stock, I think last I looked, was up 9 or 10%. It is the best performing stock guy in the S&P 500 here. But a lot of stuff going on. And there's this guy on Twitter. He's the perma bull on the name, Gary Black. He lists all those catalysts. Just look at them. These are all coming up in the next few weeks or months or whatever. So he's all in on this one. And I think it's important to kind of keep notice. The stock does move often on a lot of these kind of data points here. But you had the call. You thought the stock would break out at that prior high of 900. This was earlier in the fall, and it did it at that massive gap. And then you also thought at some point it would pull back to that breakout level. What's your thoughts before we get Carter's take on the charts of what's going on with Tesla? Will Tesla have the ability? Will, literally, no one thought it would ever be a billion-dollar market cap. Could it go to $2 billion in this year? Yeah, trillion. I know you misspoke, but yeah, trillion. The answer is I don't think it gets to two trillion this year. But look, I think early this year you're going to see sort of this reacceleration to the upside. And you mentioned it. I thought Tesla would rally a couple earnings releases ago. I said it would probably trade through 1100. I never thought it would get to 1240, but we got there. Then to your point, I said we're going to do a back and fill, and we should absolutely retrace back to the prior all-time high in February which if memory serves was $900.33. And as Carter would say, and I don't want to speak from because he's here, to the penny, that's exactly what happened. And now I think we find ourselves in a, in a paradigm where next leg higher. That's my sense. I think it's going to happen pretty early this year. And we'll see. I think there's going to be money put to work once again in Tesla. Again, I don't think it gets to $2 trillion, but I think people should be surprised by how well it does early this year, Dan. And I'm sure Carter has some thoughts as well. Yeah, I mean, what you just heard, anyone listening right now, verbally, this chart is exact, a pictorial representation of what Guy described, meaning you have a well-defined uptrend, you can see it there, and you have an approach of a, of a former high, and the news-related hurts or whatever it might be, a gap up, and then it checks back to the penny, to the prior high, and bounces. And so the question now is news-related, they put out earnings, whatever it might be, is the stock able to regain that former high at 1243? And then is it able to exceed that high? And that would be the sequencing that one would look for. And so in principle, the gap up today, news related, the price objective for a follow-on would be the prior high. And more often than not, before exceeding a high, you get stuck contending with it. And that would be, so that peak to trough drawdown was 28%. And now we're recovering well, not all, some of the sell-off. Do we recover all of it and get back to that high? Presumption is yes. Yeah, well, listen, Carter, you know, I look at that thing and it looks like a rocket ship. And listen, I've been totally wrong on the fundamentals. I've been focused on valuation. I think one of the things, if you follow that guy, Gary Black, on Twitter, he's really talking about the fundamentals inflecting that beat that they had in Q4 really bodes well for what they're likely to do as far as shipments and the sort of leverage that they're going to get on their model, especially as they expand geographically. So to me, listen, I remember at a time when BlackBerry took off, it was nearly 20 years ago, and there was a lot of investors who were just 
very easily thinking about tech over the last 10 years, and they weren't thinking about what might be able to happen over the next 10. I'm not telling you I've become a bull. I would have loved to have seen that thing check back a little bit to that uptrend and really feel oversold. I'll just say this, though, guys. If it can't hold today's gains you know, and gives them up over the next couple of days, I think it will be going back below 900. And it would be really, I think, a great thing for investors. If this is going to be the story that redefines the automobile industry, which it has in just a short period of time, in a year where we know there's a lot, a lot of competition coming online, I think you'd love to have the opportunity to buy this thing when it's sort of out of favor, which it is not right now. All right, Guy Adami, we're going to switch gears here because we got a segment. I mean, listen, we love doing market call here and we do it a little differently. But now that we have Carter every Monday, we got a segment that we call Breakout and Breakdown. You said earlier, you said mistakenly that Carter looks at hundreds of charts. He looks at thousands of charts over the weekends and he doesn't even look at the names and then when he finally sees the patterns that he's focused on then he puts the names over i know i'm speaking for you carter let's talk about a couple of names that you see one going higher and one going lower that's right and, and you know there's that thing about warshack cards what's your impression the key to charting as i was taught is the longer you're staring at it the worse it's going to get your impression is important right what you see, and that comes from a trained eye. You can do it for 60 minutes or six hours or 60 years. But the more you do it, like any other endeavor, the better and more trained the eye gets. Let's look at two stocks that I think are interesting junctures. The first is Berkshire Hathaway. Before we actually, let's do this. This is a good chart. This is a comparative chart. And what you see is they're, they're somewhat correlated. And then the top is Capital One. It takes off, right? And then it's starting to roll over. The second line is Berkshire. So keep that sort of juxtaposition in your mind's eye. Let's look at the two of them individually and we'll compare and I'll tell you what I see. So the first chart on its own, it's gonna show what I would characterize as an ascending wedge. You can call it a breakout candidate. What we know is it's an uptrend. It got ahead of itself. And then it spent a long time, eight plus months backing and filling and is just now breaking out. Right? So Berkshire is essentially $300 right now, and it was $295 in early May. That's a long time to rest. And so the sequence is a huge advance, and now consolidating, resting, working off the overbought condition for eight plus months, and now in a position to reassert itself again. So a conventional buy juncture, a textbook breakout candidate, and I think this is an excellent way. It is the second largest stock in the financial sector, but it's also railroads. It's a lot of things, as everyone knows. And interesting, and finally, offensive and defensive. If the market's in trouble or getting into any trouble, Berkshire will invariably hold up well. If the market's going to keep going, Berkshire will participate, having not done anything for 10 months. And it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned Berkshire Hathaway, the largest component in some of these financial ETFs, probably for good reason. But I think to your point, I mean, this is going to tell the tale a lot of times for what the broader market's going to do. And I think that's exactly right. Next one we need to look at, though, in terms of another name is Capital One Financial, because this is telling a different story. Now, people have tried to say this is a buy on valuation, but for the last three or four months, you can say that all you want, but the stock has not performed at all. No, it's not. And we have a, an individual chart here of Capital One. That's the comparative chart. Again, with Capital One was the high flyer and starting to roll over that you're looking at now. But the actual chart of Capital One, what it's showing is, of course, an uptrend and then a break-in trend. And 
you know, the interesting thing here is PE is this thing probably trading at a six or seven P stocks are invariably, they become seductive when one thinks the P is low, that's often time to sell them. Capital one rolling over and a lot of risk if it is the consumer falters. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you focused on this one in particular, because you could have overlaid Capital One versus American Express, which are really two different sort of stories as it relates to the credit situation here. And you're focused on one that's kind of down, downrange as it relates to credit quality. You know, I'll just say this, you know, we know that a lot of stimulus is kind of rolling off here. We know that the consumer has really kind of been on fire over the last six to nine months or so. And we know that the consumer balance sheets have been well, pretty well buffeted here. But it would be interesting to see if we did finally see, and I know, Guy, you think that there is a direct correlation between the stock market and the wealth effect that's created by that. We're also seeing that in a whole host of other areas where people own homes, where people buy JPEGs of little profile pics that have gone up dramatically, and that's obviously helped the consumer. But if all these things were to go south in the same direction, maybe started by the stock market, maybe a 10 plus percent decline, which again, we did not have all last year, you're going to see lower lows in some of these names. And I know that we've spent some time, Guy, on on the tape on our podcast talking about buy now, pay later. This is also speaking to a level of the credit spectrum that has been really been buffeted by all the fiscal stimulus and the easy monetary policy that we've seen over the last nearly two years now. Yeah. And you would look at this chart and you say, you know, Capital One looks interesting here, but if we don't have it. But if you go at a longer term, I mean, this stock was a rocket ship from obviously the March 2020 lows to the recent all-time high, which by the way, is on that screen from this past summer. I would look at Capital One reporting at the end of this month and say, you know what? There's still room to the downside. Carter has that down arrow, I think, correctly. So I think you see 125 before you see a push towards that 175 level. That's just my view. It's not to cast aspersions. It's just a Capital One got ahead of itself. And to your point, things have started slowing down, Dan Nathan. All right, my man. Well, listen, you know, the bank earnings, they're going to start off Q4 earnings season in the middle of this month. And that's always a really interesting to see to think how banks trade into those results and how they trade it out. And sometimes they really set the tone for earnings season, if you will. So that one is going to be really interesting to me, especially as we head into that Fed meeting later on in the month. All right, let's go to one for the road, guy. This is one we'd like to do on the market call. And, you know, I was thinking about this because Carter did some really, really good work a few weeks ago when he was charting Bitcoin versus Ethereum and was talking about the relative strength in ETH, the underlying crypto asset for the Ethereum blockchain network. And I thought this is one that I keep an eye on just because to me, again, I'm interested in the space. I think a lot of our viewers who don't know a whole heck of a lot about it, them now, crypto assets, will know a lot more at the end of the year because I think that we are going to see a much larger ecosystem and market cap for the whole sum. But let's talk about it because everyone really focuses on Bitcoin. And last year, in 2021, it had this huge move out of the gate here, really out of the gate, just kind of outperforming most other crypto assets there. And you see that range that it's in, you know, to me, you know, down 32% from those recent all-time highs. It's about the midpoint of this range here. And I focus on this because it's right around this 200-day moving average. It's having a hard time staying above it here. And we see equidistant to the highs and to the lows. Carter, I'd love for you to come in and kind of tell me what you think of here. Maybe it's a pair of twos, as you like to say. I'm just curious before we get to Ethereum, because to me, this one really holds the cards. I think, I, I listen, they're all very well correlated here, but it might hold the cards as far as the next leg, either higher or lower. And it's a tough one right here. Yeah. And so 
A pair of twos is, right, as we know, smallest or least hand one could have in poker. Five cards, the only thing worse is random cards, five random cards. So here's the real issue. Is the, the burden of proof, and I think we'd characterize this way, is starting to shift to the bull. The burden of proof has been on the bear, right? The bear has to make his case, Bitcoin's bad. Bitcoin hasn't been bad, it's been great. But what we have is two things that are incontrovertible. We have an attempt to break out and a failure, right? So double top, if you will. And now we have a very heavy day-to-day action at a critical moving average. So the lack of a bounce is starting to shift the burden to the bull. The bull has to make the case, no, it wasn't a double top. No, it's not acting poorly. Where the bear can just point to the facts now. We couldn't make a new high and we're not progressing day to day, week over week. You know, I look at this real quick and say, yeah, I'm sorry, Dan, but you're right. We're just straddling this 200-day moving average. We're trying to figure it out. I mean, if you go back and look, when it had a meaningful break one way or the other over the last year or so, that's been the play. So you have to wait at this point. I mean, if I'm looking at this, I say on the upside, you're waiting for a close above 50 to sort of get reinforcement maybe that's like higher on the downside it closed below 45 and we're probably staring at the high 30,000s or so on the downside but right here to me is a pair of twos and it's no man's land Dan Nathan yeah and and I bring it up and I'm glad to get your take on it guy because you made this point over the course of 2021 when it's very volatile and you look at some of the you know just the price action of late it really kind of maps some of the high growth high valuation kind of low earning sort of tech stories that have done very poorly and so it hasn't been correlated to the S&P really when you look at the downward volatility it's more correlated to the kind of high growth names that we just talked about here. But let's look at ETH. Let's look at Ethereum here. And when you look at this price action, you just, all of a sudden, you just see relative strength. You see it above its 200-day moving average. Obviously, there's some overhead resistance there. It's below that uptrend from the July lows, or excuse me, it's below, yeah, it is below that uptrend. So to me, this one, you know, I think that near-term test of that 200-day maybe seems likely. Bitcoin really feels like it wants to go back towards that 40,000 level. That was the SEP lows. But the SEP lows, for Ethereum might make this thing really oversold. Carter, what's your take on this chart? And I know that you like the relative outperformance here over Bitcoin. I do, and and I think that's the most important thing. But one could say, well, isn't it the same? Is it also a failed breakout? Yes, but it was able to move higher above the prior high than Bitcoin. So it exhibited strength. And while it did ultimately give that gain back, it also is still above its moving average, 200-day in this case. And so the relative performance of one to the other is a data point that has to be acknowledged. And by all accounts, it favors Ethereum versus Bitcoin. We promised the folks to get about in 30 minutes, Dan, Nathan, and Carter Worth. So I'm going to do it now. You see these charts. I mean, they're wonderful. This is the relative strength that CBW was talking about. I want to thank Carter because he just brings it and he's going to bring it every Monday. Thank you, CBW. Obviously, thanks, Dan. Nathan, some parting words, Dan. Yeah, man. Listen, new year, new possibilities. And the stuff that got you here last year might not exactly be the stuff that kind of gets you to the finish line in 2022. So be open-minded about some of that stuff. We're going to try to do that on a market call charts here with Carter every week. You know, you might be the person who starts a trade or an investment idea with a technical, a chart, that sort of thing. Or you might start with the fundamentals and you might use the charts to kind of help inform your decision. That's how I usually do it. So to me, they're very important to me. So I feel really fortunate to have Carter with us guy 
every Monday. Every Monday. Jan 10th, the next one. Join Carter Worth on Twitter. Follow him, Carter Braxton Worth. And thank you for tuning in to Market Call Charts. As I mentioned, our inaugural, hard for me to say, show. Today's episode was brought to you by our presenting sponsors, FactSet and Open Exchange. If you like what you saw, be sure to tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. Dan and I will be back tomorrow for Market Call Macro where we'll break down broad markets through the lens of futures. We'll see you all then.